If you would, please remain standing here as we hear the word of the Lord. We have praised his name. Now hear him as he speaks back to us. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. But Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do thank you. We do express again our need for you. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you have met that need in Jesus Christ. And in the word in which you have given to us this morning, we ask, for your continued blessing throughout this time in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 11. We are continuing to look at the Gospel of John, seeking here the very experience that John himself identifies as central to this idea, the fact that it is upon Jesus Christ that we place our trust, our hope, and our faith. And so we look to the Word of the Lord here as He speaks to us today. I suspect many of you have had the same experience that I have, the same experience that most of us have, that at different periods in our time we end up majoring in the minors. That is, that we get so caught up in a small point or in a side issue, and we get so wrapped up in that, that that becomes the main thing in which we focus on. We get caught up in the minor things of life and tend to miss or or at least skip over some of the main things in which we're talking about. I think, for instance, about somebody who's captivated by a good writing of a novel or something like that. Uh, So you get some really good writing, and you really appreciate the writing style so much that you don't really pay attention to the plot. You don't know anything about the plot. Or uh, an athletic, a display of athletic prowess, you really appreciate a particular play in a game or something that somebody has done athletically, and you forget that uh, to pay any attention to if the team wins or loses. Uh, that's almost second to you, the fact that you really appreciate this particular play. Or uh, an actor, you like a certain acting Uh, demonstration to the spot where you actually miss or you forget the fact that the play stinks or something along those lines or that the the movie isn't worth watching uh, but you still get caught up in the acting. We tend to focus sometimes on the minor things and not the major things. Now we come today to a story that is filled with absolutely amazing minor points. Uh, And the minor points all too often distract us, what I think, from the major points. Now, as many of you know, this story is one here. We kind of read the very ending of the story, the wrap-up of the story. So if you're not familiar with this, I'm going to quick try to get you caught up. This is all of chapter 11, and I would strongly encourage you, if you have, it will not take you 10 minutes uh, later today to read through chapter 11 to get the whole grasp 
of what's going on. We're going to focus only at the end of the story. But the beginning of the story happens at the beginning of chapter 11, where Jesus is informed by some folks that his good friend, Lazarus, is ill. Now, Jesus at that time was doing ministry up and around Galilee. That's a northern part of the nation. And it would have taken, oh, three or four days, maybe even a week, to get between uh, where Jesus was and where Lazarus was sick. Uh, could have perhaps only been two or three days if you moved really fast. But he was up in the north. Lazarus was down south. He gets word that Lazarus is sick. And the natural expectation, I believe, of Lazarus's family that sent Jesus that word, certainly of all his disciples, are, hey, this is a good friend of Jesus, and he's sick. We should go. We should go and visit with the family, spend time with the family. Perhaps there's even the thought that Jesus, hey, you are this uh, powerful uh, miracle worker that you are. Perhaps you will heal this good friend, Lazarus. But Jesus, surprising everybody, without necessarily explaining why, says, nope, I'm not going to go at this point in the game. I'm not going to go and visit Lazarus. And so, a little bit later on in the story, we actually find out that Lazarus dies. And Jesus becomes aware of that. Jesus is told Lazarus is now dead. And now he says, well, let's go ahead and go down there. And the disciples say, it's kind of late for that. Lazarus is already dead. Why didn't we go when he was still alive, when we could have made some difference? And besides that, the Pharisees are near where Lazarus grew up, knew where Lazarus lived. The Pharisees and the temple court is more prevalent there, has more control over there. And Jesus, you will be in danger if you go back and visit Lazarus now because the Pharisees have already risen up against Jesus. But Jesus says, nope, I want to go now to see, uh, to see the family of Lazarus. So as they go, they show up at Bethany where Lazarus was buried. And he, Jesus meets with and interacts with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, who both express confidence in the fact that if Jesus had been present while Lazarus was sick, perhaps Jesus could have done something about that fact. And then you get to our story, the conclusion of the story. Jesus there says, hey, let me go see where you have laid him. And you're taken, Jesus is taken to the tomb. And then, of course, through the miracle, the power of the resurrection, uh, Lazarus is brought back to life. Now, there are lots of minor things that can get us distracted. For instance, it's not at all unpopular for a lot of people to read this story and to be captivated by the fact that Jesus is so overcome with emotion about the loss of Lazarus that you have that wonderful verse in verse 35 where we're told that Jesus wept. Where Jesus is so moved by the horror of this thing that he has that kind of compassion and care and love. And of course we translate that into our own lives, which we appropriately should. That Jesus so has such great care and compassion that, that, that he's so moved to tears over the suffering and the pain in which we go through. That's a fine lesson to learn. We should learn that lesson. But I'm not sure that's the point of the passage. We might get caught up on the fact that Jesus' power and His divinity is being displayed here as He resurrects Lazarus. I mean, the guy had been dead for four days. And yet Jesus brings him back to life. And it would be easy for us to sit there and say, hey, the point of this passage is to marvel at the power of our Savior and what He has done. And that's a possibility. There are other ideas that you might grab a hold of. This picture that Lazarus is the first 
of what all of us will experience. Us too, every believer in this room, will be resurrected by the Lord if we die before His second coming. We too will be buried, and yet through the very same power that brought Lazarus back, we too will be brought back to life. That's an important point of this passage. But I don't think that's the point of the passage. And I can say that with a certain amount of confidence, because unlike almost everywhere else in Scripture... Most of the time, there's a story or an event that takes place in Jesus' life, and he doesn't necessarily take the time and say, look, this is the point. This is what I want you to learn from this event. In this event, he does that not once, not twice. He does it four different times. He says, look, this event, this experience that we are all going through right now, Lazarus' sickness and then into death, there's a point here. And I want you to get the point. And if we go through studying the Scripture and we walk away with this marvelous sense of God's love for us, that's great, but that's not the point of this text. If we walk away with an awesome appreciation of the power of God to raise the dead, that's great, but that's not the point of the text. When you leave this room today, if you are been touched by the Word of God, you need to be touched by the Word of God as He communicates it to us and out of Jesus' own mouth we have four different times a description of the point of this text so what is the point of the text again if you have your bibles if you flip it open to the beginning part of chapter 11 we did not read this but the beginning part of chapter 11 after Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill says I'm not going to go and heal him then Jesus says in verse 4 This illness will not lead to death. Now, we know that it does lead to death, but ultimately it will not lead to the death that will hold on to Lazarus because Lazarus will be brought back to life. It will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What's the point of this text? What's the point of Lazarus' illness? What's the point of Jesus not going down there? He's made that point. He says, look, this is the point that you are supposed to walk away, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Brothers and sisters, we've got the Word of God in front of us. God is speaking to us in this text, and He's told us the point of this text. I beg you, if what I think about this text doesn't evoke that sense of awe, that sense of majesty, that sense of, man, glory to God, then make sure you read this text yourself because God Himself, Jesus Himself has said, the point of this text is so that you walk away going, man, is God great. If you don't walk away saying that, then then you haven't submitted yourself to this text because that's exactly what Jesus says is the point here. He goes on to elaborate on that. In verse 15, he says, then after he finds out that Lazarus did indeed die, Jesus then says, Jesus, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. What's the point here? The point, so that you may believe. Well, wait a minute, didn't I just say the point was for the glory of God, that the Son of God m- might be glorified? Yes, but these two are not in conflict with each other. It's not that Jesus is saying, look, first I want you to glorify God, second I want you to believe. No. Have you ever been so overwhelmed, so taken with the notion like it's either 
through a song that you've been singing or you're listening to a great sermon or you hear somebody's testimony or there's something that, that just wells up and you say, man, I just want God, I just want God to just die. I want Him to do great things and I want to see Him do those great things and I want to be there when He does great things. That's an overwhelming passion that you have to be, to see God glorified. Okay, how do you do that? The text actually spells it out for us. So that we might believe. By believing, we are witnessing, we are doing that very thing. We are glorifying the Son of God. We are shining His glory throughout this world simply by believing. Now, not so that you have an intellectual uh, understanding. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, look, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead so that you have an intellectual understanding that I'm the Son of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying so that you might believe, so that you might give yourself over, so that you might place yourself into his hands every single time. And I pray this happens this week sometime for you, that you get to that spot where you say, hey, here's a moment where I can actively place myself in God's hands, where I can say to the Lord, I trust you. This is beyond me. And I trust in you. And when you do that, if you know it or not, you are glorifying, you are magnifying God's name so that the world might see and know who He is. So that the Son of Man might be glorified so that you might believe. But Jesus goes on. He doesn't want you to miss the point of Lazarus' resurrection. The point of Lazarus' resurrection is so that you could develop trust in Jesus Christ so that he might be glorified. And he reiterates those in verse 40 and 42. In the section in which we read, Jesus reminds Martha that, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha, the point here is so that you would see the glory of God. Could there possibly be anyone here, believer or not, that wouldn't love to see the glory of God? Here it is. That's why Jesus experienced the story. That's why the story comes to us. Jesus had an experience of this event so that each one of us might believe and by believing to pour out the glory upon our God. And then finally again, verse 42, He says, I knew that you always hear me, I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Every time. If you really believe that Jesus is sent by the Father, then that's going to shape and dominate so completely your life that you will be glorifying God in every aspect. And this is supposed to be the end result of this story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Should we be amazed that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Of course we should. Should we be in awe of the power of God that He can raise the dead? Of course. Should we love the fact that Jesus is compassionate and cares for His friends, for those whom He has given Himself to? And should we identify that with ourselves? Of course we should. But if we walk away with those points, we have missed the major point. The major point here is that we should be so in awe of God that we give ourselves over to Him more 
and more. Let's see how this happens. It begins for us in verse 38. So if you have your Scriptures again in verse 38, Jesus now, He has met with the family, Martha and, and Mary, and He has weeped with them, and then He says, show me where the tomb is. So they take Him basically to the graveside. And there, in verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Uh, there's a couple things about this idea. Jesus is deeply moved. If you look back in, 30, in verse 33, one of the te- verses we didn't read, you'll see that there he was deeply moved again. He saw the mourning of the sisters. He saw the mourning of the community as the community came together to mourn the loss of Lazarus. And as everybody is mourning there, the text says Jesus is deeply moved. And he's so moved then that you have that wonderful verse in verse 35 that Jesus wept. So Jesus is overwhelmed here with emotion, and that emotion leads him to weeping. And then he says, take me to the tomb. He takes him to the tomb, and once again, Jesus is deeply moved. Now my guess is that most of us naturally default here to the idea that what Jesus is experiencing in this deeply moving aspect is sorrow, or some type of sympathy, or some type of mourning for Lazarus' loss. But think about that. Why? Why would that be the case? For Jesus certainly knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. We've talked about that way back at the beginning of the chapter. In verse 4 and on forward, it's been clear that Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why wouldn't it make much more sense for Jesus to show up, see all these people mourning and stuff, and he says, hey guys, wait, you don't understand, watch this. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Why is he so deeply moved? The word deeply moved here. Um, it, it, it's, it's like a physical manifestation of angst. Uh, Jesus is so overcome with, with emotion, some kind of emotion. We often think that it's sorrow, but he's so overcome with emotion that, that, he's, that he's physically upset. His, his, his whole stomach is not... Have you ever interacted with somebody, a, a friend, maybe heard a story, maybe in a sermon or, or someplace where somebody is recounting some absolutely horrific thing that has taken place in their life. They were abused as a child. They had some, some great uh, evil that has been visited upon them. It was some wickedness that, it, that somebody else has done for them. And you're hearing that, and, and you physically so identify with this person, perhaps it's a loved one or something, you so physically identify with that person that you get emotionally, and and you're feeling, what are you feeling? You're feeling sorrow for your loved one. Oh, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I can't believe that that experience was yours. And there's great sorrow for that. But there's also a side of you that is indignant. There's a side of you that is angry and, and, and rises up in frustration and say, I cannot believe that this wickedness happened to a friend of mine. And, 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 you're, and, and you get that emotional state of, of both great care and compassion for your loved one, and yet an, an indignant frustration about what is happening here. And when Jesus shows up and he sees Lazarus, and he's, uh, sorry, when he sees Lazarus' family and the community as they're mourning him, he's deeply moved. He's indignant at what sin has wrought here in this place, the wreckage of evil and and brokenness in this world that has led to Lazarus dying and this whole community mourning over him, 
He's joining in their mourning. We know He does. He's empathetic. He's sympathetic to what they're going through. But at the same time, He's angry at the brokenness of the sin in this world. Don't ever get in your mind that God is somehow passé, somehow that He doesn't care about the brokenness in this world. That the sin that affects you every day, the abuse that happens in your life, the things that keep coming upon you, that catch you flat-footed, that separate you from the goodness of God, don't you ever think that God doesn't care about that. Realize that He's indignant. He's compassionate towards us, absolutely, but He's indignant about that. Don't ever think that God doesn't care about the sin in your life. That brokenness that still remains long after you've become a Christian. Don't ever think that God sits there and just lets that slide. He is indignant over the sin and the brokenness of our lives. He's frustrated with it. He's overwhelmed with His compassion and care for us. But He is indignant. He's frustrated with the brokenness in this world. Jesus deeply moved comes to the tomb. Now, the tomb is a cave. Now, the, the cave here, uh, if you're like me, and I've done some caving in my life, and I like caving, crawling around in dirty caves and stuff like that, yeah, immediately get the idea of a cave, you know, snaking around different borders and stuff like that. That's not what we're dealing with here. What they would do is that they would find a big rock or more likely a side of a mountain or something like that, and they would hollow out. They would actually physically dig into the rock and and carve out a room that would be kind of smallish. Um, I don't know the size of your bathroom, but, you know, about the size of your bathroom, whatever that is. So, you know, eight feet or so, eight by eight or something like that. They, uh, that's a big bathroom. Uh, you know, you kind of dig out the, that kind of, uh, well, some of you, no. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you, you kind of carve out a, a small room like that. And in that room, then you would lay the dead person. The person would die. They would lay the dead person. They didn't necessarily have the same embalming techniques in which we have right now. And so what they would do, they put the body in the tomb. They'd roll the stone in front of it. There would be a, a stone. Literally, they would make it a round dish so they could roll it. So they roll the stone in front of the tomb. And then the body would be in there for about a year or so. And during that year, the body would decompose. And they knew, given the temperature and the climate and all that kind of stuff, that a body would completely de- decompose after all, a little bit more than a year. And so sometime after a year or so, they would roll the, the stone that, uh, out of the way. They would go and they would collect all the bones, etc., of the person that is left over, and they'd put, uh, put it in a box, uh, a little box, and then you would be able to reuse the tomb again, put another body in there, roll the stone away again, etc. So Jesus comes to the tomb, and it's a cave, and he stands there and he says, roll away the stone. What is that cave? That cave is the embodiment of everything that is death, everything that is darkness, everything that is decay and and destruction, everything that is anti-God is pictured in the cave. Being in that cave means to be in everything that is evil and wicked. It means to be in darkness. It means to be in death. And here you have the Lord of life, Jesus Himself, who comes and stands before the tomb. The Lord of life is there standing before the tomb, and inside that grave, 
is death and destruction. Everything that the Lord Jesus has come here to conquer and to be victorious over. And what's in the way? A stone is in the way. And His plan, He says, roll that stone out of the way in every one of your lives. In every aspect of my life is that death and that darkness and that decay and that destruction and that anti-godness in my life. And the Lord of life has come to me and He says, I will remove that stone. I will remove that thing that blocks you in your death from me the Lord of life. There's nothing in this passage that tells us how Jesus was planning on doing it. But we find out later in the text He has done that by sacrificing Himself on the cross. By His death on the cross, our Lord has removed the stone so that all of us living in the land of darkness, all of us who experience nothing but death, can hear the Lord of life as He calls out to us. Jesus says, remove the stone, roll the stone away. And in comes Martha. What verse are we at here? Uh, 30, 39. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, says, Lord, there has been an odor, there will be an odor. She really, what she said, the word is, he stinks. Or it stinks. Lord, it stinks. He's been in there for four days. What's that smell? What's that smell is the beginning of a story that runs deep in Knapp family lore. The hunt for the dead chipmunk. Okay, so uh, I grew up, there are chipmunks all over the place where I grew up. There, there are a lot of chipmunks everywhere. Man, they just kind of, they all embody themselves around our house. And so they would tear into the, the gardens, they tear into the ground, they tear into the walls. Well, one of the things that they do is they find their way sometimes into the car or into the engine block of the car. So they would get up under the undercarriage of the car or they climb into the engine and stuff like that and, and they would do their destruction and stuff like that. So my parents are driving the car and after a while they're like, man, what's that smell? It smells terrible and stuff like that. Oh my gosh, a chipmunk has crawled into the car, uh, into the engine block of the car somewhere and has died. And so my dad, who's not much of a mechanic, but you know, you can't have a dead chipmunk in your car. And so he starts, he pops the hood, and he starts working his way through the engine, checking everywhere, looking for this dead chipmunk. And he spends, you know, hours looking around through that, and we'll go up there and we're all looking around, trying to find out where this dead chipmunk is. Meanwhile, it, the car is getting worse and worse. So two or three days later, the car is barely able to be driven. I mean, it stinks so bad. It's horrid. We've got to find this chipmunk. So finally they say, well, what do you do? I mean, your car... So they took it to a mechanic. And so you take it to a mechanic and say, hey, there's a dead chipmunk somewhere in the car. And so the mechanic, you know, oh, yeah, there sure is. So the mechanic then starts tearing apart the car, and he's, he really does. He pops off all the hoses. He's looking for this dead chipmunk. After a while, he says, look, I... I can't find it. you still got to pay me. You can't find it, and he can't find it. So it's just like, so my parents, and it's getting worse and worse, and they're like, oh my gosh, what we cannot run in this car. What are we going to do in the car? What do you do with the car if the smell is that really bad? They look underneath the seat. There's a Wendy's bag that is jammed up in there with a half-eaten sandwich from about four months ago. It's slowly been decaying and filling the whole room, with, filling the whole thing with, with stink. It smells so bad. And so Martha says, wait, Jesus, 
Lazarus has been in the tomb for about four days. They know the climate. They know that his body has begun to decay. And it's going to stink. And Jesus then says, Don't you trust me? Didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? Did you not hear that I said they see the glory of God? And so verse 41, so they took away the stone. Now my guess is that this happened the way it would happen for all of us. Um, I, I, you know, a bunch of guys go up and they grab a hold of the stone. They say, okay, we've got to roll away the stone. They all get their hands on it. They all look at each other and they all go, <gasps> and they roll the stone away because they know that as soon as they roll the stone away, What's going to come pouring out of that, that tomb is the stench of a body that has been decaying in the heat of the ancient Near East. Verse 41, so they, rolled away the, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, uh, this would have been the posture of prayer. He lived, looked up into heaven. That would have been the, you know, we look down, close our hands. They looked up and probably, it doesn't say so, but he probably raised his hands. So Jesus looks up, raises up his hands and says, and listen carefully to the tense of those, this verb in here. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You have heard me. How does Jesus know that the Father has heard Jesus? Because after they rolled away the stone, everybody is holding their breath. Jesus doesn't hold his breath. What's he do? He takes a great big, and he breathes in. And what does he breathe? Nothing but fresh air. And everybody else finally has to, and they, oh, oh, fresh air. How is that possible? Because we know from verse 4, the very beginning of this chapter, that Jesus has been praying that the Father would maintain, would hold the body in such a way that it would not decay. Because Jesus is going to resurrect Him. Bring Him back to life. And so you have this fresh air suddenly that Jesus experiences, that all the people experience, so that He stands there and says, Father, you have listened to me. You have not allowed his body to decay. So then he can speak with the power of command. Look at what Jesus says here. Lazarus, come out. You could put an exclamation point at the end of each one of these words. They're all kind of independent in the text. Lazarus, come out. Now, there's an ancient tradition here, uh, early church used to say that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus by the power of his word and just said, come out, all the tombs would have busted open and everybody would have flooded out. He says, Lazarus, come out. The power of command, the Lord of life, standing before a dead person, a dead tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And of course, you know the point in the next verse that the dead man comes out and is alive again anew. Do we overemphasize the Bible in this church? Okay, like, if you're part of the community here, if you've been around for a while, you know we talk about the Word of God all the time. We talk about Scripture. It's what shapes 
every worship service. It shapes the way in which we worship together, both in song and in our liturgy. Certainly it's a high point here as we hear God's Word speak to us, when we read the Word of God, when we're encouraging you in your devotional time, when we're encouraging you through the small group ministries, through everything in which we have going on here at the church. It's grounded in the Word of God. Why is that? Notice that Jesus does not say, how can I help, what can I do for Lazarus? Well, maybe I need to rub his arms or, you know, pat him on the head or give him chest compressions or something. Jesus doesn't do, what does he do? He speaks by the power of his word. Reminiscent absolutely of what happens in Genesis 1, where God, by the power of his word, brings out of nothing the world. And then, by the power of his word, shapes that dead world into a world that is full of life. By the power of Jesus' word, he shapes the death that is in that cave and makes it alive in Jesus Christ. By the power of his word. We have the power of God's word. That's what the scripture is. That's why we center everything around it. That's why we focus so much upon this. Is because the scripture is not just a dead letter written Bible book somewhere. The Scripture for us is the very power of God. Who here doesn't want to experience and to see and to feel? Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the crowd where you hear Jesus bark out, you know, Lazarus, come out, and suddenly there he is, the power of God's Word? That's what we have in the Scriptures. Scriptures, the power of God's Word. I feel a little bad for you guys. I've only been here a year and I'm already repeating myself uh, because some of you might remember. I hope somebody here remembers uh, that about nine months ago I spoke on this. uh, I I used this passage that we were looking at Colossians and we were talking about Colossians, what it means to, to raise the dead, that Jesus, we are alive in Jesus Christ. And I kind of referenced back to this spot, particularly this last verse. After Jesus crawls out, Lazarus, come forth. Then in verse 44... The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in the cloth. Now, first off, this should bring to mind a little bit for those of you who know your biblical story about Jesus' own resurrection. When the disciples came running to the tomb and they looked in, what did they find? They didn't find, they found his face cloth and his linen strips laid aside neatly. Jesus resurrected without all of these things. But when Lazarus comes forth, he's wrapped up in these things. Sort of like a mummy, but not sort of. The the, the strips that that the Israelites used would not have bound him so tight. But nevertheless, Lazarus somehow gets from laying on the stone bench in the back of the cave to the front of the cave, and he's kind of standing there, and he's wrapped in the clothing that marks him as a dead person. If you were walking through Palestine and you saw laying on the side some person wrapped in linen cloths with a face mat, with a face thing over a, a cloth over his face, you would immediately know that person is dead. He's dressed like a dead person. Lazarus is de- dressed like a dead person. And the last thing that Jesus does, he doesn't just resurrect him and then say, "Now live your life all wrapped up like a dead person." He says, now live your life by being unbound, being freed from everything that identifies you as somebody who is dead. 
You are no longer among the land of the dead. You are now among the people of the living. Therefore, live that way. Get rid of all of the grave clothes. Don't wear your grave clothes around. Shed yourselves of everything that is like that. And notice in this text that Jesus says to them, to the crowd or to the sisters, we don't know who he says, but he says to them, go and unbind him because Lazarus can't do it by himself. He can't get rid of all of those things that mark him as a dead man. I can't get rid of the things that mark me as a dead man all by myself. I need you to come up to me. I need you to come and say, listen, you're no longer among those the dead. You're now among the living. No longer look like this. No longer act like this. No longer be this way. You are now a person who no longer has the habits of the death. No longer has habits of of everything that is wrong. We now have the habits of all those who are alive. Live that way. You cannot live that way without me coming up and telling you this is what it means to take off your grave clothes. We can't live this way without you telling each other this is what it means to take off the grave clothes, to no longer be bound by the death that marks us as not the people of God. For we have become the people of God. All this is possible, not so we marvel at the fact that I am no longer wearing grave clothes, but now that I wear the clothing of a person that is living, All of this not so that we sit there and think Jesus feels that kind of compassion and care for me as well. Not so that we sit there and think, wow, one day me too, I'll be resurrected to eternal life. This is all so we walk away from this place going, man, do I have a great God. And a great God has me. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we are so thankful for the blessings that you give to us, for the way in which you pour out love and grace upon us in every way, so that we are not left uh, to our own devices. We are not left on our own to come out of the grave, but rather through the power of your word, Lord, you have called forth from each one of us true life, real life. Lord, the opportunities that we have, the overwhelming excitement we have to be your children, to be in awe of your greatness and your power and your love. Convince us again anew this day of your awesomeness, of your glory, so that we might put our faith and our confidence more and more in you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.